Oh God, how grateful I am for Your grace on me. God, I pray that Your people would echo that prayer, how grateful that they should be for Your grace on them as well. Lord, help us to be a grateful people. Help us to be continually, constantly reminded of Your goodness and Your grace and Your great mercy, the depths of Your mercy on us. How undeserving we are of Your love, the sacrifice of Your Son, and yet how much You loved us to send Your Son to suffer punishment on our behalf so that we might enjoy forgiveness and new life in Christ. Father, I pray that as we open the Word before our eyes this morning, that it would open before our hearts and minds and that You would lift it and take it and supernaturally take Your Word and use it in our hearts and minds today, Lord, I pray. God, that the power of Your Spirit and Your Word would rest upon us in spite of these feeble and frail words that I'm going to share this morning, Lord, I pray that You would overpower my weak words and take Your Word and drive it deep within the hearts and souls of people this morning. Lord, help us to see Your truth for the necessity. It's necessity in our lives for daily living, for living like Christ, for for dealing with sin in our lives, for being reminded of Your grace for being reminded of your mercy and the great love with which you loved us. Lord, help us to yield before your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to ask you a question before I ask you to turn to the Scripture in your in your Bible this morning. Let me ask you a question. I don't want you to answer out loud, but I do want you to think about it. Would you... Would you suffer anything for God? Would you suffer anything for God? Would you suffer whatever God requires of you? My guess is that if you're a child of God, you will answer, if I asked for an audible answer, you'd say, yeah, I'd I'd do anything for God. You might say out of gratitude to God after just singing Amazing Grace and singing about the grace of God and singing that hymn, and can it be? You might say out of gratitude in your heart, God, I will do anything. I'll suffer anything. Whatever He wants me to do, whatever He wants me to suffer, if He wants me to suffer, I will. Let me ask another question. If I asked, what would you be willing to suffer for the sake of unbelievers so that they might be saved? What would you be willing to suffer for the sake of unbelievers so that they might be saved? That's That just might be in your mind a different question. We might at first say, well, you know, I, I know I'd suffer anything for God, whatever God requires of me, because I know He'll give me the strength that I need to endure whatever it takes to suffer for God. And then we might stumble with the answer of what we'd be willing to suffer to see unbelievers come to Christ because we're not quite certain who we'd be talking about sometimes. I'm not sure who who is it that, that I'd be suffering for. Who is it that, that needs to come to Christ? Well, we know we know people need to come to Christ, don't we? Some of us are praying diligently for people who need to be saved. And we might say, for those people, I'd be willing to suffer anything. But I'm not sure about all people. And yet, I want to challenge you with this thought this morning that 
That God's word points to this truth that the sincerity of our love for God can be proven by our love for people. That's why we say, we put on the entryway out there, we put in print and things to remind us, loving God, loving people, it's one statement, it's really one command. You, you can't say, I love God, I love God, I will do anything for God and not love people. Because what, what love you have for God will, will grow your love for people. If you really love God, you will really grow to love people and honor God with your attitude toward people. I want you to go with me this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to find this morning that Paul helps us see why a willingness to suffer for the sake of unbelievers is required of those who claim to follow Christ, is required of those who claim to love God. And he helps us see that suffering for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ is worth it. Suffering for the sake of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is totally worth it. It's not me saying that. That's Paul saying that. You'll see. You might think, why endure hardship? Why does the Bible teach Christians that they should have to endure hardship and suffer persecution for the cause of Christ? Why do we have to learn to endure hardship? Let's look to our passage this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10. Verse 10, Paul writes, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul says in verse 10, Therefore I, <clears throat> therefore I endure everything. I want to just stop at the word endure there for a moment. What is this endurance that Paul speaks of? Well, the root of the original word in the original languages means to remain under some discipline or to remain under some kind of mistreatment of yourself that you would normally rebel against. And I say mistreatment because you'd normally rebel against mistreatment, right? In the original language, the word carried the meaning of perseverance. It carried the idea of steadfastness or constancy or endurance. And so the the word that Paul uses, therefore, I endure. And the idea that we get from the language that Paul uses here is that he is willing to remain unflinchingly steadfast, persevering through hardship, bearing up under, under a heavy load, and he does so and his desires to do so with the quality of character that will not allow him to give in to any circumstances or fold under any trial. And his language also has in it this ability to be forward-looking, focusing beyond this difficulty, forward-looking beyond this current hardship. That's the kind of thing that we see spoken of Christ in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, where it says of Christ, looking to Jesus, Jesus Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who... For the joy that was set before him. Here's why he endured the cross. Because he was looking forward. It's the same idea that we have in our text this morning. This in Looking forward. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus Christ looked beyond the cross. And so he was willing to suffer anything for you and me. 
so that we might be forgiven our sins and made new creations in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same kind of forward looking that Paul is indicating here, that he's willing to endure looking forward past the hardship. Paul is not saying, here's what Paul is not saying, Paul is not saying that he endures everything with some kind of a grim determination, as in, I'm going to get through this no matter what, right? I'm just going to bear with it, I'm just going to grip my teeth. That's not what he's saying. That's not his attitude here. His is a courageous boldness that accepts suffering with the grace that God gives and the future promise of glory that God gives to His children, understanding that this comes in the providence of God to be used for God's glory. He accepts suffering knowing that this will be for God's glory. But why, Paul? Again, we might ask, why? Why endure everything? I can understand. Endure some things, but why everything? Look at verse 10 again. He says, for this reason, for this reason, right at the beginning, pointing back to what we've already seen, what we've already learned, because like Paul might say, I know that God is doing his work. If you look back at verses 8 and 9, by the power of God evidenced in all things, and especially the resurrection of Christ, verse 8, and because God's word is powerful and cannot be bound, as our brother Farrell Thomas said this morning, reminded us as he prayed, God's word is powerful. It will always remain. People will forget about us someday, but God's word will always remain. It cannot be bound. For this reason, Paul says, for this reason, because God is doing his work, proven by the fact that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, proven by the fact that the word cannot be bound, for this reason, Paul says, I endure everything. But that's not all. Even though Paul was innocent of any crime, guilty only of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, bound in chains, imprisoned, likely to to lose his life in the coming days or even weeks, we believe, because this is the last writing we have from him. Even though he was guiltless of any real crime, he was only guilty of preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, he also gives more reason for his willingness to endure all hardship and suffering. He was forward-looking. He looked back and said, because of the Lord Jesus Christ raised from the dead, the power of God proven, and the power of the Word, the, the Word will not be bound. It's doing its work. And because of this, he says, I endure everything. And again, I'll give you some more understanding of this word, endurance. The original was also a military term, which meant holding a, a strategic position and doing so at all costs. But what else do we see here that would give Paul the encouragement to stand fast and endure at all costs as he encouraged Timothy to do the same? And God's word encourages us to do the same. He says in verse 10, I endure everything. Here's the reason. Another reason. Not only because of the power of the word, not only because of the risen Christ, God's power evidence, but for the sake of the elect. I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Do you see it? Paul was encouraged, greatly so, motivated, though though facing real hardship in the midst of it at the time, very severe hardship and had been through much suffering. He knew 
that his suffering was worth it all because God would use it to point the elect to Christ. Paul says, I endure everything. Here's my reason. For the sake of the elect, I can endure hardship. I can endure endure punishment. I can even endure death because I know God will use it to bring his elect to himself. He says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. But who are these people that God's word calls the elect? What we learn as we read God's word is that the Bible uses words like elect and chosen and predestined to describe people that God in his infinite mercy, don't ever forget this, that God in his infinite mercy chose from before the creation of the world to be saved. And the Scriptures also make it clear that those God elects to be saved are not chosen by any merit of their own. They are chosen solely because of God's sovereign good pleasure and purpose. We see this doctrine of God's elect or chosen or predestined in many places throughout God's Word. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 is one of those where Paul writes, he says, "...in Him we have obtained an inheritance." having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We also see this doctrine of election in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, where it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, And these whom he, verse 30, predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, now there's no question about whether God has elected some to salvation because the Bible over and over again repeats this theme, repeats this truth. But here's the question that some people have about election. Some people might say, Well, doesn't God just elect those who are going to choose Him? Doesn't election just mean that God from before creation chooses the people He knows in advance are already going to to believe in Him? And the time that we have this morning does not permit us to cover the depths of this topic, but I do think that we should cover this just briefly today because it's here in the text, and I want to deal with it while we're here. There are three passages in the New Testament that talk about God's foreknowledge. One of them in the passage that I just read in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 where it says, For those whom he foreknew, there's God's foreknowledge, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Another passage is in Romans chapter 11 and verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And the third is 1 Peter 1, 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And so in other words, some might say, well, can't we just understand election like this? God chose the people that he knew ahead of time were going to receive him as Lord and Savior. And I think the answer is this. The, the modern English uh, for, uh, for the word foreknow does simply mean to know ahead of time. That's what we mean when we talk about being fore, foreknowing something. It means that we know ahead of time. But the Bible foreknowledge has a Bible foreknowledge has a much deeper, a much sweeter meaning than that. And it doesn't mean just knowing ahead of time. It means 
Bible foreknowledge means intimately known. Intimately known ahead of time. It means loved ahead of time. It means foreloved. You can see that by reading the other places in the Bible where the word is used, where foreknowledge is used. And what the Bible points to when it speaks of foreknowledge is, is foreknowledge of persons, not foreknowledge of facts about persons. And I would be careful to use a passage like Romans 8.29 to explain that the elect are those whom God knew certain uh, facts about, like the fact that they would choose him for salvation. I'd be careful of, of using a passage like Romans 8.29 to, to prove that. We can see this isn't simply God knowing some fact about people in advance, because when we see that the Bible speaks of foreknowledge, it always talks about God knowing someone or someone knowing God. That doesn't have anything to do with knowing facts about people or knowing facts about God. God's foreknowledge is always a personal knowledge. It also always involves a saving relationship. And that's what passages like 1 Corinthians 8.3.2 where it says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. He is known by God. That's talking about a personal knowledge that involves a saving relationship. Or Galatians 4.9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, that's a personal relationship. That's a personal knowledge that involves a saving relationship. And so, in Romans 8.29, where it says, those whom he foreknew, as one commentator notes, quote, should be understood to mean those whom he long ago thought of in a saving relationship to himself. The text of Romans 8.29 actually says nothing about God's foreknowing or foreseeing that certain people would believe, nor is that idea mentioned in any other text of Scripture. In fact, a Romans 11.2 passage I read earlier similarly speaks of God's foreknowing persons. For foreknowing persons in a relationship, not people, not facts about people, or the fact that they would believe when it says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. His people whom he foreknew. It's a personal foreknowledge and a saving relationship. So, so I understand the scriptures to teach that the elect are those and so we're answering this question, who are these elect that Paul's talking about? I understand the scriptures to teach that the elect are those that God foreknew as in those whom he long ago thought of in a saving relationship to himself. Meaning, the elect are those whom God loves ahead of time in a saving relationship to himself. Sweet truth of the scriptures, a wonderful truth of the scriptures. Now, to some, that seems, and I will just, I'm going to share an objection that some people have to this. Some, to some people, they say, well, that doesn't seem fair. That God would choose to love some people. That doesn't seem fair. And that's because, you know, that kind of runs against our own human sense of fairness, doesn't it? We say, oh, that's not fair. Everything has to be fair, right? Everything in our house has to be fair. Alright? In our house, when we have cookies, when anything including sugar has to be fair. Okay. It's amazing. We have a, you know, pan, we make these, I say we, I don't do this. I don't do any of this. They make bar cookies. I shouldn't say we. They make bar cookies. Kids and, and Carolyn make bar cookies in a pan. And Carolyn's always very good. Cut it into ten pieces. Ten pieces. Or tw- twenty pieces. Twenty pieces, sorry. Gotta get it right. 
20 pieces. Cut it into 20 pieces. So there's no... And we struggle with this because we as humans, we have this sense of fairness about us, right? And we would, and we need to be careful about this when we start talking about whether something God does is fair or not. Because our sense of fairness is limited to our earthly kind of thinking, isn't it? And that's because it runs against our human sense of fairness when we stop and say, well, I'm not sure, that doesn't seem fair. I would caution that we not allow our sense of fairness to become distorted by the culture or the times in which we live. We must have our thinking shaped by what God's Word says at all times. And and very often it will contradict the the traditional thinking of, of our culture. We need to be careful that we don't allow ourselves to settle issues and answer questions this important based on feeling or sentiment. We must go to the Bible. We must simply go to the Bible to see what the Bible says. What does God's Word say? Now, I understand it's possible that some of you are going to say, I I don't quite see it the way you've explained it. I, I'm not convinced. And, and to you, I would say, please keep an open mind. I'm not here. My goal isn't to convince you to see election the way I see it. But, and you don't have to agree with me on this, but... Many good Christian people have a different perspective on this, and I would fellowship with people who don't understand it the way I do and always have. As a matter of fact, in our own fellowship of churches, our own fellowship of churches don't all see it this, the way that I've described it. And I'm likely right if I say that in our own church, we're likely going to always have people who don't see it that way. But that's the way I understand scriptures to be, and it's such a sweet truth to me. If we discuss, we can discuss our differences, we can come together and discuss how we see things, and that is a perfectly acceptable thing for us to talk about it. If we discuss our differences in the right way with a Christ-like attitude, it can be a very healthy thing. So I don't discourage discussion about this, but this is the way I understand scriptures to teach God's foreknowledge. And, and this is explaining who the elect are. So this is really important to us. So what does this have to do with Paul's endurance, right? We're going back to Paul's endurance. What's this got to do with Paul's endurance? It has a lot to do with Paul's endurance. Look at Second Timothy 2.10 again. Paul says... I endure everything for the sake of the elect. And he endures, think about this, he endures, he holds fast, he is bound and determined, he remains under this mistreatment that he would normally rebel against, you and I would rebel against if we weren't thinking, wait a minute, God could be using this for his glory to lead people to himself. He's bearing up under this, it's not this grim determination, grit in his teeth, going to fight it out whether he likes it or not whether he lives through it or not. But he does so. Why does he say, I endure everything for the sake of the elect? He does so to the benefit of those that God has chosen that we suffer for the cause of Christ. For the benefit of those that are God's elect whom he is saving, we suffer for the cause of Christ. It is to their benefit that we suffer. Paul says, it's to their benefit that I suffer, so I bear up, I endure anything for the sake of those that God has selected. Paul was willing to suffer anything for the cause of Christ because he knew there were people whom God was going to save. There were people who God was saving, and it's still true today, there are people God is going to save. We must learn to bear up under anything any kind of mistreatment, any kind of mischaracterization of our faith, any kind of mischaracterization of our motives to help people, love people. Because the longer you live for Christ, the, longer, the more you're going to find out 
You're going to be resisted. There will be persecution. The Bible reminds us of that. That's why Paul encouraged Timothy with these words in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. It's for the sake of the gospel to reach sinners who need Christ that we suffer and that we bear up under anything. Note, too, that Paul was confident that his suffering for the sake of God's elect was not in vain because salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone. How many of you think Paul died? We all do, right? You all think, don't you all think Paul died? Paul died, okay? Paul died. How successful was he then? If he was willing to endure hardship, what happened to you, Paul? You died, dude. I mean, you couldn't make it. Which proves the point that it's not salvation through Paul, is it? Because Paul has eternal life after death, right? Jesus Christ rose from the dead and lives eternally. But Paul wasn't able to save anyone. Paul was God's mouthpiece. You're not able to save anyone. You're God's mouthpiece. You may not like being called a mouthpiece, but, but that's an honor. It is a privilege to be a messenger of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what Paul was. And yet he died. And yet he was imprisoned. He was in chains. And he wasn't free to roam and preach wherever he wanted to. But you know what? Paul knew that God had him right where he wanted him. And Paul was willing to endure anything for the sake of the elect, for the sake of those God was saving. And God was going to save, and God is saving. See, Paul's strength and encouragement came from the fact that he was forward-looking, looking beyond his present circumstances to know God has elect whom he is saving. And because of these circumstances, he's using this circumstances to point to Jesus Christ, to point to the gospel which I preach. Remember, the salvation is in Christ Jesus alone. Yes, God calls us to be faithful. And this, I've been preaching for weeks about being strong as a believer and being faithful and strong and courageous and bold for the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you succeed or if you fail in your courage, God's word will not fail. God's word will prevail and God's elect will be saved. But you are called to be a messenger of the Lord Jesus Christ, a high privilege that we carry. Remember, salvation comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry writes, This salvation is in Christ, in Him as the fountain, the purchaser, and the giver of it. Don't ever forget that the new life comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't come from you or me. But God does call us to be strong and to remain faithful because of the elect. Because what Paul points to in verse 10, for those who repent of sin, Believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. There is, Paul says in the end of verse 10, eternal glory. You see, Paul's strength and encouragement that he sought to encourage Timothy to grow in, and this is for all believers to grow in, is that the salvation of God's elect doesn't rise or fall or succeed or fail on our strengths and weaknesses. And the outcome of God's success, because God will succeed, God will prevail, His Word will prevail, the outcome for believers, for those who believe, is eternal glory. 
See, we have this great motivating hope and promise that God has chosen to use people such as us to communicate the gospel to those whom he will save, and they have eternal glory ahead of them, as you do if you trust in Christ. Yes, we may suffer for a time. Yes, we may face mistreatment and misunderstanding and mischaracterization. We may even face severe hardship as if, as in physical hardship. We, we don't know anything about that in our culture. You know, and in a way, the fact that there is no physical persecution of believers in the United States has, has allowed an explosion of false religions and mistreatment of the scriptures because, because true believers would be weeded out if there was serious persecution in our culture. And we may face serious persecution one day, but we don't face it now, do we? We are very blessed in a way, and yet not blessed in another way, because if we were truly persecuted, the word would probably speed along even further. But whatever comes, neighbors who look down their noses at you because you're one of those weirdo Christians who believes the Bible. I see you carrying your Bible to church every Sunday. They may not say it to your face. They may, they may take the gospel that you try to share with them and say, oh, that's okay. I don't want to get all, you know, churchy with you and everything. That's okay. That's yours. That's, that's not mine. That's not for me. And you may feel as if you're being persecuted and you may be to some extent. But that's only for well, just a little bit of eternity. You have an eternal glory ahead of you. And the Lord Jesus Christ called Paul, He called Timothy, and He calls you and me to be willing to suffer anything for the cause of Christ. And knowing that God has elect whom He will save should not, should not weaken our passion for sharing the gospel. It should embolden us to share the gospel because there are people whom God will save who need to hear the gospel. And God has chosen us to, to carry the message and how privileged we are. It ought not weaken our passion for sharing the gospel. It ought not weaken our resolve to pray for the lost. It ought not weaken our desire to send missionaries around the world that preach the gospel to people who need to be saved. Because we know that God's plan will be carried out. Because we know that God has elect whom He is saving. Knowing as Paul did that God is saving His elect, made the suffering that He was facing and He endured worth it all. Whatever you face, whatever you face, no matter what trial, no matter what disappointment, no matter what harm comes upon you because you are a follower of Christ, and let harm come upon you because you are a follower, not because of your misdeeds, says the Word, right? Don't let, don't let, don't, don't let mistreatment come, come upon you because you're doing misdeeds. But if mistreatment comes upon you for the gospel's sake, just know that God will use your testimony to further the work of the, of the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ. And knowing as Paul did that God is saving his elect made the suffering that he endured worth it all. It can make it worth it all for you and me as well. It brought Paul to the point where he was willing to endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. What would you be willing to endure for the sake of unbelievers so that they might be saved? What would you be willing to endure? I hope with me you'll bow your head this morning and 
yield your heart to God and ask Him to help you be emboldened to be willing to do anything for the sake of those that God is going to save. Let's pray. Father, we bow our heads before You and I pray that people here this morning have their hearts bowed before You, that we are completely yielded before You, Lord, that that we have a deep desire to know Your Word and then obey Your Word with the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, enabling us to do so. And Lord, I pray that with Paul we might have that attitude that he encourages Timothy with and encourages God's people with. Lord, please help us to be willing to endure everything for the sake of the elect. Lord, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Father, help us to not be so short-sighted that we forget about the eternal glory that lies ahead. Lord, help us to not be so short-sighted as to overlook the fact that you're saving. You're saving people. Lord, help us to have hearts that are burdened for the lost around us, that we, that we would pray for them, that they would be saved, that we would be so burdened for the world in which we live that we would be emboldened and encouraged to get behind and send missionaries around the world and continue to do so and pray for them. And not least of all, Lord, that we would be willing to suffer anything for the sake of the elect whom you are going to save. Lord, grow us as a church, embolden us as a people, grow us as individual believers to be strong in the faith as we face each day, each week, for your glory and for your honor. With the strength of your Holy Spirit, the power of your word at work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.